Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our second panel in this very exciting, enlivening, and, and important event. I want to start by thanking the Center for the Study of Race and Law and the Law Review for creating this forum and for inviting me, really honoring me by asking me to participate. And I especially want to congratulate our students who I know spent many months shaping, reshaping, and then reshaping again, uh, the content of the panels and the, the discussion so that they could be sure that we, that we were well poised to address the issues that matter most at this very dangerous yet exciting time in our history. Um, as those of you who were able to attend the morning panel are well aware, um, our focus is on uh, thinking through insights and a whole range of voices, voices uh, from the past, uh, voices from the present. And as our students are particularly adept at identifying voices from and for the future, uh, voices that will help us to understand what the content of our constitution should be, uh, what kinds of litigation and legal practices we should be pursuing, um, what we should be studying in our courses on feminism and other uh, forms of critical social justice, uh, what our community activism should look like, um, a whole range of, of issues that we must confront and we must, I hope, address together. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get out of the way immediately and give you a brief introduction to our speakers. Um, again, we're just so grateful to have you here to help us think through these tough issues at this moment when uh, we most need your help. Um, each of our speakers has an enormously interesting personal narrative. We call them autobiographies or biographies. Um, and I'm going to just share, uh, scratch the surface with with you. Um, our first speaker, Adrian Davis, uh, comes to us from the Washington University in St. Louis School of Law, where she is Vice Provost, the William M. Van Cleve Professor of Law. She also serves as the Director for the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Equity, and she also is the founder and co-director of their Law and Culture Initiative. Um, she will be speaking to us about explaining the power of Black Lives Matter and the split gender politics of today. Um, next up will be Professor Melissa Murray of NYU School of Law, where she is the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law. She is the director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network, and she will be talking to us about Justice Thomas's concurrence in Box versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. Um, next on our uh, roster is Rachel Sulfoy, who is a member of the class of 22 here at the University of Virginia School of Law. Um, Rachel is a graduate of Swarthmore College where she obtained a degree in music. Here at UVA, she is a leader in a range of important professional activities she is the programming chair for the Lambda Law Alliance, a member of the Virginia Law Review, and she is carrying out research on Title IX and other interesting issues related to discrimination. 
Um, finally, we will have with us Camille Gear-Rich, who comes to us from the Gould School of Law at USC. There, she is the Associate Provost of Diversity and Inclusion. She is Professor of Law and Sociology. And uh, Professor Rich will be speaking to us about the, uh, a paper titled Colorblind Patriotism. So I'm gonna turn it over to our panelists. Um, as I do, I would please remind the audience to be thinking of questions and sending them my way. Please type your questions in the Q&A box and we hope that we will have time to get to most of them. So first of all, Professor Davis, welcome and we look forward to hearing from you. Um, thank you so much. Um, and it's, it's Adrian. Um, oh, it's, sorry, Adrian. No, it's okay. As in, as in we're old enough to remember uh, Rocky, uh, as in yo, Adrian. Um, so the title of, of, of what I'm going to talk about is actually called um, Feminism Without Women, uh, provocatively titled Feminism Without Women. Um, so, you know, many of us, many people were confounded by the stark racial fractures that were revealed between white women and black women in national politics during the last election. And while we won't have the verified data for a while, uh, the exit polls primarily indicate that in last fall's election, only 8% of black women voted for Donald Trump, while 55% of white women voted um, to reelect him. And not only did black women almost uniformly vote against reelecting Donald Trump, but some believe that the powerful coalitions forged by political operatives and strategists like Stacey Abrams and other black women are the strategic future of, of the Democratic Party and certainly of, of progressive movements. In contrast, um, white women split almost down the middle um, in their voting, even as more and more white women emerge as uh, formidable conservative political actors. I really cannot stop following uh, Marjorie Green on Twitter, following, not her, but following, um, following her as a hashtag. Um, so disaggregating the 2020 voting preferences by race and gender reveals myriad dyadic curiosities. And the racial split among black and white women is arguably the most striking, but additionally much noted is that the powerful racial juggernaut of black Americans voting democratic is more complex when we account for gender. 18% of black men voted to reelect Donald Trump compared to black women's 8%. Less discussed than either, oh, I'm sorry, let me turn off my, I forgot to turn off my email. It's gonna keep pinging and drive um, all of us mad. Um, I apologize. Um, um, less discussed um, than either the black woman or uh, black woman, white woman, or the black woman, black man voting gaps is the division between black men and white women's voting preferences. Both voted for Trump in statistically significant more numbers than black women, but less noted is that white women outstripped black men in voting to reelect him over a majority uh, compared to 18%. So why do racial and gender justice appear to have different valences for black men and black women respectively, oh, excuse me, for, for black men and white women respectively, or put differently, why did Donald Trump's manifest racism and sexism seem to differentially affect their support for him? Intersectionality is one of the most powerful analytic frameworks to have emerged in feminist and anti-racist thought. Initially articulated by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw in two path-breaking articles, rightfully among the most cited uh, of all time, intersectionality long ago transcended legal theory to become a methodological staple in humanistic, social scientific, uh, academic work, creative practice, and even in medical scholarship. At the same time, it has exceeded its scholarly and legal origins to become a guiding organizing principle of politics, social justice movements, and cultural work. 
Perhaps provocatively, I contend that we have not yet harnessed the full analytic power inherent in Crenshaw's framework. Part of the extraordinary scholarly and political impact of intersectionality lies in its intuitive math, that if racism and sexism reach subordinating structural forces, then black women who suffer from both are doubly marginalized. Indeed, this has emerged as a common scholarly and political wisdom. Yet I argue um, that this double marginalization math, as appealing as it is, and I, I call it additive intersectionality, actually limits the analytic power of Crenshaw's insights. As I will show, additive intersectionality cannot fully comprehend the complexity of the 2020 election. Intersectionality is complex and its math is less predictive than the additive model, model suggests. For instance, the additive intersectionality cannot explain the gap between white women and black men in voting for Trump. It explains the difference between black women and white women and explains the difference between black women and black men, but it does not explain the gap between white women and black men in voting for to reelect Donald Trump. I argue that a return to Crenshaw's initial powerful articulation reminds us that intersectionality is better characterized as algorithmic. That is, as a complex formula for understanding the interplay of identities across time, place, and politics. And of course, I think when pushed, we all would say, yes, that is exactly what we mean. And yet we so frequently default to the doubly marginalized, which always uh, will, will always um, portray Black women as uh, the most victimized or the most subordinated. The second argument that, um, that my paper makes is that the identity axes that undergird the intersectional metaphor do not have stable, predictable weights. And again, while this may sound obvious, the math behind the double marginalization metaphor suggests that racism and sexism have equal stable weights, hence the doubling. And instead I'm arguing that in order to understand this political moment, we need to explicitly understand and engage identities as having shifting variable valences or what we might call weighted intersectionality. And that this algorithmic weighted approach can better, first of all, I think that it is inherent in Crenshaw's framework, and I think it can better account for the complexity of voting preferences that we encountered among the various race gender dyads. I'm looking at the black white dyads, but of course there are myriad dyads, uh, Hispanic, Latino, Latin, Latinx, uh, um, um, Asian as well. Um, and also I'm not gonna tackle them in my paper, but they also I think shed really intriguing light on, on uh, white men's, how white men's voting preferences shifted um, between 2016 and 2020 as well. Weighted intersectionality, I think, also brings additional power um, in terms of how different groups develop forms of what sociologists would call the oppositional consciousness that underlies voting uh, voting preferences. And so this is something I don't think I can get into it in this uh, in this paper, um, but I'm very much intrigued by how um, different groups develop anti-racist and, and feminist or gender justice, gender equity, anti-sexist uh, ideologies and why, why uh, families of color and black families in particular can be so counted on to produce children who identify, who believe in racial justice and, and, and anti-racism, but that uh, families, especially white families, cannot be counted on to produce um, children and girls who embrace feminism and anti-sexism in the same way. Um, finally, I want to argue that the algorithmic um, weighted approach also cast doubt on the common wisdom um, that race and gender will always combine or double to make black women um, the most subordinated dyad. And we all know that um, in many cases, we find that uh, the black men uh, suffer far worse uh, outcomes, whether they are uh, medical disparities, educational disparities, economic disparities um, than, than black women. Um, so there's a mathematical structure 
um, to intersectionality, but I think that the intuitive and additive math is getting in the way of fully harnessing the power of what Kimberly gave us. And so I'm arguing that if we return to her initial articulation, especially in her first two path-breaking um, articles, that this will yield the explanatory power that we need to understand this political moment and our political future. So I wanna end with a provocative claim. Um, many white feminists uh, were appalled and bewildered by um, a perceived betrayal of solidarity politics from um, their fellow white women who voted to reelect the president. And in contrast, many black feminists and black women more broadly who do not identify as feminists, but who did uh, vote for Joe Biden, and many saw ourselves as voting against Donald Trump. Um, many black women are more cynical, maybe a bit disgusted, but not surprised. And implicit in the sense of betrayal from, I think, many white feminists is the understanding that feminism should be like we anticipate that all social movements are, social justice movements, is a progress narrative that not only will we continue to make progress in gaining rights and pursuing and claiming gender equity, but it's also an ideological progress narrative. That is that this progress will itself normalize gender equity as more and more people, including more and more women, will embrace it and identify as feminist or at least as anti-sexist and believing in gender equity and gender justice. And yet I think part of what was so demoralizing is we saw the opposite in the last, um, last election. And as so many of the speakers this morning, I think powerfully and profoundly explained using a really, really, I think wonderful historical um, investigation, you know, white women's political and social conservatism is nothing new. Um, so hence, even as we continue to drive feminism and gender equity forward, we may actually be doing so with fewer women. Um, and so to end provocatively, provocatively uh, we may be tackling a feminism without women. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Davis, Adrian. It was great to hear from you. Um, next, Professor Murray, we look forward to hearing your comments. Thank you, Anne. Um, and thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this terrific symposium. Um, thank you to the Law Review and the Center for sponsoring it. And, as a proud graduate of UVA, it is always great to be back in Charlottesville, even if only virtually. So thus far, the symposium has really posited the idea of intersectionality as a critical method in the struggle for a more equitable society. And in this talk, I wanna suggest that like anything else, intersectionality as a methodology can be deployed to multiple ends, including to support efforts that we might understand as inconsistent with efforts to secure race and gender equality. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna talk a little bit about a paper that I have written that's forthcoming in the Harvard Law Review. And the paper focuses on Justice Thomas's 2019 concurrence in Blocks versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. The case was a challenge to two Indiana abortion restrictions, one of which was a trait selection law that prohibited abortion if intended for purposes of race or sex selection or upon the diagnosis of a fetal anomaly. Now, although the per curiam opinion from the court granted certiorari and upheld one of the challenged restrictions, it denied certiorari as to the trait selection law, which prompted Justice Thomas to write a separate opinion in which he chided the majority for denying cert. But more importantly, in that separate opinion, Justice Thomas began crafting a narrative in which he conflated the history of eugenics and the birth control movement with the history of abortion. As he explained, Margaret Sanger, who is the founder of what we now know as Planned Parenthood, worked hand in glove with the eugenics movement to spearhead efforts to expand the use of birth control and family planning 
within the Black community, ostensibly for the purpose of targeting and stamping out Black reproduction. And as evidence of this joint enterprise, Justice Thomas noted the disproportionate rates of abortion in the Black community today, the contemporary residue of this earlier effort to market family planning measures to the Black community. He then circled back to the challenge trait selection law, observing that such restrictions on abortion were merely the state's modest attempt to ensure that, a genic, eugenic, that abortion did not fulfill its eugenic potential to eliminate unwanted traits or characteristics. So to be clear about it, Justice Thomas in that concurrence is engaging in a kind of intersectional thinking, bringing to bear issues of race and disability to a social phenomenon that has traditionally been discussed in terms of gender. And so with that in mind, in the paper, I argue that we should understand the concurrence as an effort to transform the social meaning of abortion from a practice justified on grounds of women's equality and autonomy to one that is actually about racism, racial injustice, and the prospect of eugenic deracination. And critically, this effort to transform the social meaning of abortion is, I argue, part of a longer range strategy to destabilize and eventually overrule Roe versus Wade on the alleged ground that the abortion right is rooted in and tainted by racial injustice. Because of stare decisis, past decisions like Roe versus Wade cannot simply be overruled because a majority of the current court disagrees with it. Instead, under our doctrine, a special justification is required. Justice Thomas's association of abortion with eugenics begins to construct the case that racial injustice is the special justification that warrants overruling Roe. And this is not unprecedented. The idea of race and remedying past racial injustices um, serving as a special justification for reconsidering and potentially overruling past precedents is well established in our constitutional history. So in Brown versus Board of Education, for example, the court famously revisited Plessy versus Ferguson, concluding that the Plessy court had failed to appreciate the psychological damage of segregation on black children and noting the changed understanding of public education in our society. And just last term, we saw the same impulse in Ramos versus Louisiana, which overruled a 1972 decision permitting state level criminal convictions that proceeded from non-unanimous jury verdicts on the ground that the earlier court had not grappled with the racialized underpinnings of the non-unanimous jury rule. With this in mind, Justice Thomas's racialized critique of abortion furnishes new justifications for reconsidering and overruling Roe. Specifically, it provides new factual circumstances steeped in race and racial animus that may suffice to render what the court has called Roe a remnant of an abandoned doctrine. So to the extent the box concurrence provides a path toward overruling Roe, its logic depends entirely on Justice Thomas's effort to graph the history of Margaret Sanger and the birth control movement and eugenics to abortion itself. But as historians and commentators have noted, the history that Justice Thomas deploys for this purpose is both selective and incomplete. With that in mind, the paper that I provide offers a corrective by furnishing a more complete account of the historic relationship between race, reproduction, and reproductive rights. As I explain, the idea of the association of race and reproductive rights, the idea that it emerged with Margaret Sanger and the eugenics movement in the 1920s is completely wrong. 
the entire history of the regulation of reproduction has been shot through with questions of race since the days of slavery. And indeed, concerns about race shadowed efforts to regulate reproduction after the Civil War through the 1920s and well into the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement. But to be sure, the notion that broader access to birth control and abortion were part and parcel of a broader effort to curb Black reproduction and limit the political power of the Black community was articulated by Pan-Africanists like Marcus Garvey in the 1930s and was later reprised by both the Nation of Islam and the Black Power Movement in the 1960s and 70s. In this regard, Justice Thomas is not necessarily wrong. He's tapping into a vein of discourse that was in circulation in the Black community and has been for some time. The trouble though, is that the view that family planning was part of a racist conspiracy to marginalize and subordinate the Black community was not shared by all within the community. Civil rights leaders of the 1960s, including Malcolm X and the Martin, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. were supportive of family planning measures on the view that being able to control the size of one's family was an important element in stabilizing the black community's economic circumstances and ergo its political fortunes. And as importantly for our purposes, Black women in the traditional civil rights movement and in the Black power movement vehemently voiced their objections to what they saw as the masculinist association between abortion, contraception, and genocide. So these were women like Shirley Chisholm and Tony Cade Bambara, Angela Davis, and Flo Kennedy, who we heard about in the last panel. All of these women were making clear that if the issue was racial genocide, the problem wasn't widened access to abortion and contraception, but rather state-sponsored sterilization abuse and the injuries that were caused by unsafe and illegal abortions, or more particularly, the challenging circumstances in which Black women were forced to raise their children. Providing this kind of history, this counterpoint to Justice Thomas's history is critically important for a number of reasons. First, from a litigation standpoint, it provides reproductive rights advocates and members of the judiciary with a more robust historical account with which to challenge the box concurrence and its effort to reshape abortion doctrine and its social meaning. To the extent that Justice Thomas's history is the account that is percolating in the lower federal courts, this counter history makes clear to reviewing lower courts that this history is at very, the very least more complex and contested than Justice Thomas would have us believe. But more importantly, the counter history doesn't simply serve a litigation or doctrinal function. It also serves a really important political function. In framing abortion as an effort to suppress black reproduction and by extension, the black community, the box concurrence makes black women unwitting dupes in a eugenic plot or worse, willing co-conspirators. By contrast, the counter history actually surfaces the voices of black women themselves and makes clear that they did understand the claim of black genocide. They just didn't agree with it and they forcefully contested it and rejected it with a counter argument about what genocide actually looked like. And that kind of representation I think is vitally important in the politics of judicial deliberation. As I suggest in the paper, when Justice Thomas speaks on the court about issues of racial justice, he does so with a kind of epistemic authority that comes from being the only African-American on the court. Likewise, the addition of Justice Barrett to the court serves a similar function. When the question of Roe or abortion more generally comes before the court, 
Justice Barrett will likely be skeptical. But because she is a woman, her skepticism of abortion as a means of promoting women's equality and autonomy will likely be imbued with the kind of epistemic authority that may resonate, if not with her colleagues and certainly with facets of the public. In a similar vein, Justice Barrett, who is the mother of two adopted black children and a child with Down syndrome, may be especially well-situated with a kind of epistemic authority on questions of trait selection, abortion restrictions, functioning as anti-discrimination measures. So given that within the court, certain views and constituencies will be well-represented in the deliberations on the question of abortion and its future and its intersection with issues of race and inequality, it is worth thinking about what constituencies will go unrepresented. In this regard, the history that I provide in this paper gives voice to the concerns of Black women at a time when they are absolutely unrepresented among members of the court. And in that way, there's a means of using intersectionality to contest Justice Thomas's effort to perhaps manipulate intersectionality methodologies in order to change the social meaning of abortion. So I will stop there um, and I'm happy to discuss other aspects of the paper and this argument in the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Murray. It's an honor to have you back with us. You're welcome, certainly by Zoom, but we'd love to see you in person at any time. Um, I'm now gonna turn over the reins to Rachel Slapoy, who is going to be talking to us about her paper, Bostock's Inclusive Queer Frame. Thank you. So first of all, thank you to UVA for inviting me to the Virginia Law Review for publishing me to and Coughlin for moderating this panel and to all of the other wonderful legal scholars here uh, um, before whom I am as nothing. But I am here to talk about uh, Bostock versus Clayton County and about law. Um, I think Archilochus says that foxes know many things, but hedgehogs know one big thing. So I'm here to talk about gay hedgehogs and about Justice Gorsuch. And as the white woman on the panel, I ha also have to talk about myself a little bit. Uh, what I mean by that is I want to make, um, broadly speaking, three points. The first one is doctrinal and theoretical. Uh, the second one is about rhetoric. And the third one is about me. So. First, I want to talk about the discrimination theory of Bostock. Um, my argument in this essay is very much that Bostock supersedes the reasoning of Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins and that that is good actually. Um, and that Bostock is laudable not just because of its textual analysis, which uh, beside, aside from everything else I think is sound, but because it properly understands the actual function and motivation of anti-queer subordination. And that even more broadly speaking, when we talk about anti-queerness, when we talk about anti-transness, when we talk about misogyny, when we talk about you know, that discriminatory logic, rather than the identity underpinning it, that we are talking about more or less one big thing. Um, there has been a uh, movement in uh, a minor movement, I would say, in scholarship see seeking to kind of uh, distinguish between the so-called gender nonconformer and the transgender plaintiff, for instance. Um, the Kimberly, Kimberly Urago, for instance, does this in the, 
in her book, Gender Nonconformity and the Law. Um, and there is a, a push to maintain this rigid distinction between gender and sex, between the thing that we do and the thing that we are. I, on the other hand, rather than rather than inter, rather than seeing these forces as intersectional, um, I take after uh, Ido Katri, who has talked about these discriminations as kind of intrasectional, because at the end of the day, they are necessarily and constitutively bound together. Now, I'm not uh, trying to suggest that Neil Gorsuch was. Uh, reading uh, gender theory or that uh, the court is particularly caught up on the um, various queer rights movements that have arisen in the 60s and how they've interacted um, uh, with the push and pull of the broader feminist movement. Um, but Bostock was the perfect vehicle to prompt this kind of inclusive conceptual leap. Um, to a significant degree, I think part of that is the court's choice to consolidate in uh, two cases about uh, homosexual men and one case about a transgender woman. And that, allow, that allows the decision to generalize, to talk about sex as a motivating force and to refocus, or at least to emphasize the refocusing of Title VII jurisprudence on the reasoning process of the discriminator instead of the identity of the person that is being discriminated against. What, what I do to some extent, or what I attempt to do, is to draw out that process and the mechanics of that discrimination. Um, that what is basically happening when somebody sees a transgender woman and understands her as a transgender woman and discriminates against her as a transgender woman is the perception of the like wrong, wrong body, essentially. That, that, that there is a person whose body is understood to supposed to be doing one thing and then here she is doing something completely different. Um, to some extent that is like the classic case of um, that is the classic case of nonconformity, and other people, you know, for decades have talked about, um, you know, the the special phenomenon of trans misogyny. That there is something particularly, you know, um, heinous about seeing somebody who the eye identifies as, you know, supposed to be doing masculinity, choosing to adopt femininity instead. Uh, femininity, after all, is something that nobody is supposed to. Uh, choose because A, it is supposed to be subordinated, B, perhaps it is supposed to be um, constructed or that it's, uh, or even if you're a particular kind of second wave feminist, it's something which ought to be discarded altogether as being you know, uh, emergent from uh, sexual subordination. Uh, that's where you get people like Janice Raymond, that's where you get people like uh, Raymond Blanchard, who talk about trans women as uh, um, impersonators, as fetishists, as uh, rapists, even metaphysical rapists, um, because they are 
invading a, a conception of the feminine, which if you're that kind of radical feminist, really shouldn't exist. To some extent, the case of trans misogyny is a case of intersect intersectionality in that you can kind of take that additive approach and say that you have discrimination against A, a woman, and B, a transgender person, that these interact to form a special kind of um, transgression plus. But I think it is, I think it is better and more fruitful and more conceptually um, useful to talk about this kind of discrimination as a discrimination against a, a lesser class of woman. That these forces which, seem, which seek to subordinate the feminine and who seek to subordinate transgender people are reacting against the same thing, against the notion of doing the wrong kind of, doing the wrong kind of thing with your body, of uh, um, enacting the wrong kind of, the wrong kind of performance, of uh, loving the wrong person, of dressing in the wrong way. Um, these, uh, these forces, they come together, they form a complex, um, and they manifest themselves on different kinds of identities in different ways. But I think that rather on seeking to distinguish to slice up and to um, separate these various classes of identity, which is basically a philosophical question, one that I'm not sure that any of a, anybody is in a good position to answer necessarily, certainly one that the courts are not in a good position to answer. Um, and one which may be in general fuzzier and less distinct than we would like it to be, we can focus on the discrimination and the thought of the discriminator and the logic of the discriminator, which is in a more meaningful sense unified. So that's the theory. Um, that, comes, that comes through in Bostock, that's that's great and good. And I think that the, the expansiveness of the but-for test that's articulated there is, is, is useful and its language of a kind of a inclusive conception of sex discrimination is, is laudable. Next, the rhetoric, uh, or rather second. What are we doing as lawyers when we talk about queer rights? How do we talk about them? How do the courts talk about them? And how do they talk about transgender plaintiffs? What I find, what what I find and what I found meaningful in Bostock is the the degree to which it's whether consciously or necessarily or not um, sees transgender identity as unproblematic. Um, even, even courts which are more amenable, um, more explicitly in favor of transgender rights, more aware of, you know, the kind of historic, more willing to speak about the historic nature of what they're doing. I'm thinking, for example, um, uh, Green versus Gloucester County, which was resolved in August here in our, here in our backyard, a couple of hours east in Virginia. Um, but while Judge Floyd writing that majority opinion is conscious of, uh, you know, 
doing something important for civil rights. He also takes the time to, to explain and to explain the transgender plaintiff and to explain the transgender body. Um, and so you get these pages after pages of what does it mean to have this thing, to be this thing called a transgender, to have this uh, condition called gender dysphoria. Why does Gavin Grimm have to use a men's bathroom? Because he has a doctor's note and he has a disease that's cataloged in the DSM-5. But Bostock is, Bostock doesn't see the need to go into all of these things. And to that extent, it's a model of a, of a, of a, rhetoric, of a rhetoric of transgender equality, which um, doesn't seek to justify equality by justifying our existence. You don't really need to uh, provide trans 101. You don't need to talk about medicine. And that is because you don't actually need to decide who this person is because you're not articulating a transgender right in Bostock. You're, you're articulating a general right which is accessible to the entire population. Title VII's rights are for everyone, and that means that it doesn't matter which disease Amy Stevens has, what she seeks to do with her body. What matters is what she was faced with. Um, in other courts, um, and even in the field of scholarship, the emphasis on the medical and on the language of identifying as, rather than simply being, which is, more than one person has remarked, but I kind of repeat that, you know, transgender people are forced to identify and nobody else is asked to do that. Um, woman, uh, even cisgender women identify as woman, but they get to simply be women. The language of identifying as, the language of gender dysphoria and the ignorant, and the construction of identity as um, something that's inherent rather than constructed through acts, all those things come together to allow um, particularly, I think, dissenting judges to infantilize, to ostracize and dehumanize and basically misunderstand uh, what it means to be a person navigating gender in the world and particularly what it, what it means to be trans. So that finally, bring, that finally gets us to me because to some extent, what motivated me to write about this was you know, the experience of reading Bostock last June and um, having a, a deeply emotional experience that was not necessarily mirrored by other commentators because you, you can't help but be an optimist when you see the Supreme Court not treating you as a puzzle to be solved or as a mystery to be explained uh, um, as something which needs as a person who needs justification but as a, a person with with I guess equal standing so when I wrote this in August and September Bostock was fresh it was clean it was new it and it was exciting that circuits had delivered uh, several uh, encouraging wins for transgender rights. I'm thinking of um, Grimm, which I mentioned, I'm thinking of Adams versus um, 
St. John's County out of the 11th Circuit, which uh, reiterated the kind of message of, uh, which held along with Grimm that um, a school which denies a transgender uh, child access to the restroom of their choice violates Title IX. And I'm also thinking of um, Hecox versus Little, which is now on appeal of a preliminary injunction to the Ninth Circuit, but which enjoined a, um, which enjoyed an Idaho law um, targeting transgender women and forbidding their inclusion in uh, school sports. So when I was writing this in September, in early September, I felt quite good. Um, I'm not sure that I would write it the same way today. The law is developing quickly and there are a number of bills which are pending in uh, state houses all over the country, um, which would restrict the um, you know, equal standing of of transgender people. I feel like I don't have time to get into specifics, so I'll just gloss over this. Um, I can't not mention um, Otto versus City of Boca Raton, which it came out of the 11th Circuit and um, struck down a local ordinance banning conversion therapy um, for minors. What I want to what I want to end on is that the things move back and forth and we can go through the courts, but at the end of the day, the law is not going to save us. And nothing in Title VII is actually going to help the girl whose parents have thrown her into the street. But at the end of the, but maybe, just maybe the expressive power of law and its ability to speak to a common humanity can work in favor of those um, who are being targeted because as I say in the very last sentence, the Supreme Court can still tell us that trans rights are human rights. So thank you, Rachel, for that paper and your description of the paper. I, I'll just offer one reflection that's a thread that I'll pull from this morning's panel, but it was also a, a thought that was firmly in my mind when I read your essay, which is that I, I predict with a great deal of certainty uh, that your essay will be included in uh, the canon of, of writings on Bostock. Of course, you will revise it. We all have the occasion to do that in our careers. That's a sign of growth, but this is a very significant contribution and I bet the rent that it appears on syllabi uh, very soon. Um, next up, we are absolutely delighted to welcome uh, Professor Camille Rich, and she will now take it away. Thank you, Anne. And uh, it's just a, such an honor to be on this panel. There's so many um, interesting insights that have been presented already. I'm going to try to stay within my 10 minute time frame so we have enough uh, time to really explore all of the issues that have been raised. So I'm going to be probably a little bit briefer than some of our other presentations. Um, I'll start off by thanking uh, Professor Kim Ford-Mazuri for including me in this celebration, um, and also the University of Virginia Law Review, as well as the Center for the Study of Race and the Law. My paper is called Colorblind Patriotism, Recognizing the Role Intersectional Politics Play in Framing First Amendment Conversations. And it's structured around a series of images because I think that sometimes, especially because I'm a scholar of performativity, um, some of the expressions of gender performance um, really help us to understand some of the stakes in the legal doctrine and even in the late understandings that accompany the doctrine or shape right judicial actors responses once they're presented with technical legal questions. So I'm going to go ahead and share my slides if the technology works with me. 
Are the slides visible? Am I good? Good. Okay, great. Okay, I'm wanted to start off with this iconic uh, image of Aisha Evans. Um, this has been, you know, so often we see this picture without reference to her name, and it's one of the ways in which sort of Black women's identities get erased and they become symbols for other things. So I thought it was important just at the start of our presentation to recognize this young woman for who she is um, and the great risk that she took walking forward to face police officers in this moment in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the context of this Black Lives Matter protest. Um, it really crystallized for me the stakes of what our themes are uh, in this current moment, thinking about the relationship between Equal Rights Amendment and Black Lives Matter, and what her position as an intersectional player, right, a sort of paradigmatic representation of intersectionality theory in its first iteration, can teach us about the articulation of background legal norms and of um, doctrine in particular. So the uh, event that is on everyone's mind right now, is, uh, no one can deny it, right, is to stop the steel, um, storm the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. Um, I'm including just some basic facts of, of how seismic this event was because there seems to be this kind of um, creep away from a recognition of the uh, truly awful nature of what that insurrection was about. Five dead, um, four rioters, one police officer. Um, actually, I think it's now two police officers. I think another one committed suicide. Um, 56 officers injured, right, 200 files open. Um, after all of the dust is settled, after the smoke is cleared, what does the event teach us about race, gender, and free speech in the United States? And in addressing this question, it was an eerie moment for me because about, God, it must be, you know, three or four years ago now, um, I wrote a paper called, um, is it a man's world reframing the right to protest after the Charlottesville controversy? And I went back and looked at a couple of constructs in First Amendment doctrine to think about some of the default cultural norms that inform those standards and how they affect our understanding of what our free speech rights are in the United States. That is, there are certain background understandings of gender that inform some of the seminal cases that don't get surfaced or talked about in a typical way. And they come to shape our lay understandings of what it means to participate in protest what it means to exercise one's free speech rights, what counts as excess, and this is the important part, what counts as expected and unavoidable excess in the expression of passionate views. So for some people, the violence at the Capitol, right, is the side effect of people getting really fired up and you should expect this kind of outburst. The more that that sense gets naturalized in the context of these discussions, right, it has tremendous implications for what First Amendment um, expression looks like in the United States. The layer that I've added for the purposes of this discussion is to think about it more specifically from an intersectional perspective, right? So historically, intersectionality has been talked about as a way of surfacing how discrimination regimes fail to capture particular aspects of discrimination phenomena. And that's the way in which Black women's um, discussion of how anti-discrimination law sort of shut down the articulation of their injuries, right, provided some insights into the limitation of how Title VII works. They created new space and in the process created opportunities for other folks who live at different intersections who wouldn't have been caught by traditional expression of doctrine. So can we do that in the context of First Amendment law that is use the intersectional perspective of Black women and the ways in which they engage in political protest to problematize existing First Amendment constructs? So I won't be talking within the confines of a particular case, right, or a particular um, decision at any particular moment. What I'm trying to orient you to is the ways in which First Amendment doctrine is taught, right, writ large in classes across the United States, and the implications that has for the naturalization of certain approaches to the First Amendment, to the expression of one's free speech interests, and the ways in which excess, 
gets either naturalized or treated as a criminal problem. I'm gonna to be two, doing two different kinds of intersectional analyses. So one is looking at the experiences of black women and particular forms of political protests to say, why are we not talking about this? These are some of the most important things in terms of our First Amendment conversations. When we continue to focus on the actions of the rioters at the Capitol, and don't, I'm not minimizing right, what happened there, but when we continue to place our focus on them, we lose our ability to identify the ways in which black women who have been central to so many protests in the United States are injured, are targeted, and are subordinated. Those things should be brought into the First Amendment canon, and we won't do that as long as we focus on these particular actors in this particular way. The second thing I'm proposing is that we do need to look at how First Amendment is structured in ways that accommodate this particular perspective of right, a white male rioter at the Storm the Steel insurrection. What understandings of anger and of expression are naturalized in the way we talk about First Amendment interests now? Can we disentangle them? And what would be the consequences of doing so? Okay. One thing you perpetually heard from the protesters is we are patriots, we are patriots. The bafflements at how law enforcement treated them, they could not wrap their heads around it. There was a reason for that, right? And the intersectional frame helps us understand why this happens. So again, intersectionality, although it's been traditionally understood is identifying these kinds of discrimination dynamics and the way in which doctrine tends not to fully capture them should also be understood as bringing our attention to multiple socially subordinating forces that converge at particular moments in time to create unique moments of marginalization. It can also be understood to create unique moments of privilege, temporary privilege at these intersections. And that's one of the things that I suggest that is happening in First Amendment doctrine. For a lot of these, uh, we'll call them folks, <laughs> who were participated in this event, um, they were looking back at a particular historical moment where their particular um, activity at this intersection was treated as a moment of patriotism. So they were drawing on that narrative as they moved through space, thinking there was this continuous story, this continuing history. But they were enacting a particular form of masculinity, right, that we should not attribute to all people who claim a masculine um, gender or masculine focus. That is, they were enacting what we call protest masculinity, which is a particularly um, destructive form of masculinity that is associated with people who are either on the economic margins or who fear political power. And this particular version of masculinity is not um, specific to the United States. It's arisen across the world in various different kinds of political con contexts. It's the kind of masculinity that particularly right, takes hold in groups that are identified as terroristic in action. So my provocative question for you today is how much of First Amendment doctrine is based on this version of protest masculinity, which naturalizes certain forms of excess and protects speech just up to the line when it constitutes what First Amendment calls a true threat or constitutes a classic moment of true incitement. And how much time have we heard people debating this, right? On news programs across the country is, did we get to the exact technical moment of incitement? Did we get to the exact technical moment of threat? The reason they're having so much trouble with that is because those doctrines as they come together, right, are designed to protect a certain kind of activity that does tend to burden First Amendment interests. I'm not gonna get into it today because we don't have enough time and I'm a little worried I've already gone over my time. But my point here is this, when you look at the seminal First Amendment case on threats, it's Virginia B. Black. That's about terroristic violence. It's about the Ku Klux Klan. When we look at Brandenburg, which is our classic case on incitement, 
That's about terroristic threats and the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacy. Is it any mystery why these doctrines are not well prepared to deal with the kind of white terroristic violence that we're experiencing now? I submit that it's not and that it's drawn from a particular version of masculinity, which people recognize as a problem today, but we don't have First Amendment constructs yet that fully capture our concerns, okay? Um, if we had more time, I would go into the male pageantry. Um, maybe people will have questions about this. Um, I'm teaching an online class at UVA. I, I buried the lead there. So I'm teaching an online class at UVA right now called Racial Ambiguity Blues. In that class, we explored the ways in which the uh, storming the Capitol insurrection is actually about the reconstruction of whiteness and fights about the construction of whiteness that are occurring right now. When you look at the pictures with that frame in mind, some of the discontinuities, how can someone who's wearing an Auschwitz sweatshirt match, march next to someone who's an Orthodox Jew? It explains a lot of what's happening there and it brings up really important issues for understanding contemporary politics in the United States right now and the politics of whiteness itself as a political phenomenon. Here today, I really wanna focus on this intersectionality question and the First Amendment issues. One of the things we saw in all this male pageantry, aside from the Viking costumes and Uncle Sam, you know, in the sort of cartoonish hat and the caveman costume, was the deployment of government symbols in a campaign of intimidation. It was a claiming of those symbols. Now, typically you would worry about that kind of claiming, um, that kind of association, I should say, um, force association and a kind of compelled speech doctrine that worries about the government foisting its messages on private actors and forcing them to communicate the government's message. This is the opposite dynamic in which government is being implicated in a particular speech activity it wants no part of. We don't have right, a construct yet to deal with the deployment of government symbols in the context of intimidation. Would that be considered a kind of content-based discrimination if we attempted to regulate that particular activity? These are the kinds of questions, right, that bubble up through an intersectional analysis. Uh, I'll, like I said, I wanna keep it moving so that we can uh, get to the questions. So three questions that I would pose to people who maybe wanna do additional work in this area um, I'm gonna lay these out in the paper, but again, this uh, particular piece that I'm going to submit to the journal is really um, an invitation for other people to do different kinds of intersectionality work. Um, there's no way I could go through all of these. Uh, so what I wanna do is just invite more people into the big tent of intersectionality and really um, celebrate, as, as um, Professor Davis said, you know, really celebrate its promise, realize that we haven't fully captured all it has to offer. So one question that I find people tend to focus on, which is an intersectionality question is, right, are black women being treated differently under existing First Amendment standards? That seems to occupy a lot of people's attention. It's a totally valid um, thing to be concerned about. The picture of the young black woman taking a knee in front of these officers, right, is a question about why they perceive her as a threat, why she's seen as a source of incitement. Not trying to disturb the doctrine with that particular question, it's totally valid, especially when you see white women being escorted down the steps after having stormed a government building. That's fair. The second question is, do default norms, these protest masculinity norms that would protect you right up until the point where you were actually, uh, and some people would say uh, the protesters certainly exceeded this, where it protects you right up until the point until you punch someone in the face or advise someone else, right? Go ahead and punch someone in the face whether or not they're exposing this woman to danger. So if we know they're gonna be disproportionately applied and folks with brown bodies, right, are going to be exposed to more danger, do those arguments about treating everybody freely under the existing standards get us to where we need to go? 
And then the last question I sort of um, teased at this in the beginning, right? Does the focus on these standards really get us to some of the more interesting First Amendment questions? I mentioned this here with these images because the Brie Newsom Bass example where she climbed the flagpole and took down the Confederate flag, right? She was celebrated as an incredibly powerful political actor who had this seminal moment in American culture. And it absolutely was a seminal moment, but I worried that she would be shot, right? For trespass, destruction of property, any, any number of things. Protest masculinity teaches us and some of the general sociological literature on the nature of protest in the United States suggests to us that more violent trespass, right? Excess kinds of speech associated with masculinity are treated as more serious moments of political protest than ones that look more feminine. So again, are these standards putting Brie in a position where she feels like in order to be relevant, in order to truly show her power, she's got to climb that flagpole? I would prefer, right, lay understandings of the First Amendment that actually provided her with more protection. And I'm contrasting what she did with something else that's equally um, dangerous, but more uh, in a feminine cast that maybe wouldn't be taken as seriously. And that's Darnella Frazier, who took the video of George Floyd, right, that act of bearing witness, of standing her ground, standing her ground is the, <laughs> the masculine construct again, right, but bearing witness and making that film, it became one of the most seminal um, moments for race relations in the United States in the past year and probably the past decade. Again, really not framed in the same way as the breed moment was in that particular moment. I was happy to see she was getting some awards. Um, if you step back from the intersectional frame to think about the larger issues, there's a young man of color who's in the position that she is. He filmed the Eric Garner protest. He's been subject to retaliation. He's currently sitting in prison. There've been all sorts of false, um, well, questionable charges lodged against him. If we were gonna really take that interest in filming seriously and make that central to our First Amendment conversations, I submit that might do more for black women and for people at the margins who are witnessing and recording and discussing the events than focusing on incitement, threat and heckler's veto. Um, I wanna check in with Anne. I'm over my time, all right? I should stop. Yes, I'm over my time. Okay, um, there's a little more detail on uh, what you know this might look like if we really interrogated the heckler's veto, its relationship to trespass, privilege, and the entitlement to space. Just a couple more images to get us thinking about that. My main point is we need to rethink our lay understandings, consider the ways in which um, gender and particularly a race version of gender informed them, um, and center black women's experiences and thinking about the legal questions that preoccupy us. So thank you again. I hope this was uh, interesting and helpful and I look forward to your questions. So thank you so much, Professor Rich. Um, to say the least, your themes are very important to everyone in the nation, but uh, I and I know others in the audience uh, take a particular interest in it uh, because of the events that we live through here in Charlottesville um, and the ways in which the university and our local law enforcement seems to have proceeded based on deeply misguided understandings of how to uh, protect free speech in that moment. Um, so, so thank you so much for spending time with us today, but also for teaching the course to our students. Um, you'll, be, you'll be doing us a huge favor. You are doing us a huge favor. So we have a number of questions and I'm gonna go ahead and get started asking them and thanks so much. If there are more questions, please put them in the, uh, the Q&A box. Um, but our first question goes to Professor Murray. Um, so people today often consume literature and media that comports 
with their political views of the world. I'm sure you've heard this. Um, your paper gives us a counter narrative to Justice Thomas's interpretation in Box. And what the questioner wonders is whether in your view, um, this is enough to combat narratives and perspectives to the contrary. And if not, what else is needed? It's a terrific question. Um, let me just say that Justice Thomas's narrative has only been circulating for a little over a year at this point, but it's actually made incredible inroads in the lower federal courts. Um, it was cited a number of times in the amicus briefs for June Medical Services, which was a challenge to an admitting privileges law in Louisiana that the court heard last year. It wasn't even a law that was about trait selection. It was about admitting privileges, yet this narrative of abortion as racial genocide threaded its way into that case. So um, it's actually had legs. And again, um, if that's the only narrative circulating, you can imagine that it has incredible power. So it's important to, I think, have a counter narrative out there. Um, even if the courts don't accept the counter narrative, the fact of the counter narrative shows that the history is actually contested. But what can we do to sort of dispel this idea of misinformation or incomplete information, even in places like the federal courts? Um, you know, it, it's a terrific question. Um, it is one that the University of Virginia Law Review has actually had a hand in addressing. A couple of years ago, the Law Review published a paper by Allison Orr Larson about the trouble of amicus facts. And um, in that paper, Professor Larson discussed the fact that there is really no way of verifying the information that is provided to the court in amicus briefs. And, and, and this is sort of a classic example of that. Um, this history is being surfaced in lots of amicus briefs and there's no way to actually verify those facts. And so um, one way would be sort of institutional mechanisms for courts to check facts or to perhaps limit who actually submits an amicus brief. And you know that may be more cumbersome and require more coordination among the federal courts and more initiative um, from the federal judicial center itself. But at the very least, offering counter narratives gives the court an opportunity to sift through different narratives and perhaps determine which one they find to be most compelling and convincing. Thank you. Um, if we were present together, the panelists would get to ask each other questions. Um, so I'm going to have the opportunity to sort of reproduce that moment. And um, Professor Murray has a question for Rachel. And I'm sorry, Rachel, I should call you Ms. Rachel or Ms. Lapoy. Um, uh, I'm trying to do the right thing formally. Um, so here's, here's um, Melissa's question for Rachel. Um, what do you make of the final paragraphs in the Bostock majority in which Justice Gorsuch refers to RIFRA as a super statute? And he goes on to suggest that nothing in the opinion uh, diminishes protections for religious liberty. And as Melissa points out, the funeral home that Amy Stevens uh, was working for uh, raised religious liberty as a defense but that question was then not presented to the court. Thoughts? <laughs> um, my thoughts on that are twofold, which is, I think that, I think that Gorsuch being kind of who he is, um, 
is trying to uh, at least rhetorically narrow the scope of what he's doing in this opinion. I think that it, I think that its logic goes much farther than Title VII, but I think that by doing this, he's also signaling that perhaps he's not going to be as favorable to, say, this logic being played out in the equal protection clause context, which is where we're, which is where we are heading next. Um, and if I, and of course we are going to face this kind of perennial question, which I know that uh, Professor Murray has addressed in the past of the conflict between religious freedom and LGBT rights, and uh, in general, the right to, the constitutional right to discriminate. Um, I'm not sure how the court deals with any of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I regret to say that I haven't, I, I'm not a, uh, a RIFRA knower um, or even a free exercise clause knower. Um, and I think that this will definitely encourage some of, um, some of the cases which are now being worked up to pursue that kind of an angle. For instance, there are, um, I think I mentioned Otto versus City of Boca Raton, which is a free speech challenge to, an, to a conversion therapy ban. There's another case, um, but just pending resolution in the Fourth Circuit. Um, I think it's called Doyle, I think it's Doyle versus Hogan, like it came out of Maryland, uh, which brings a similar sort of challenge. But um, if I were trying to pursue this thread, I think that um, the court is signaling that first, uh, first uh, free exercise as applied challenges to these kinds of statutes are going to be treated uh, more favorably. It's going to be a fun few years. Fun is a good word. Um, so our next question goes to Professor Davis. Um, so here, here goes, um, where else outside of voting trends do you see the limitations of additive intersectionality and the strengths of algorithmic intersectionality play out? So can you give us examples outside of voting trends? Yeah, um, I can give two real quick. So one is a historical one that um, I know that my, my fellow legal historians like Serena Mayeri and others are going to be very familiar with. There's a, a very quick um, um, analogy. It's a longstanding analogy that gets made even today by very smart people between marriage and slavery. So I was giving a talk, I think, just last year and talking about, you know, slavery and American race is one of the you know roots of American racism. And a, a very smart white woman in the audience said, you know, can you talk a little bit about the analogy between, you know, sort of marriage as the the original, you know, kind of source of oppression of women and um and 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 slavery. And so I kind of you know went through and you know kind of walked through you know all the reasons why the, the analogy does not um does not hold. But I think it comes again from that sort of additive view, right? That um that that race and sex are these sort of you know as articulated in the 
double marginalization, right? That there's sort of these equal weights, right? Racism and sexism. And I'm not saying racism is more serious or is heavier. I'm just saying that in some contexts, people will be searching for the analogy because if they are, if it's a doubling, then what is the analogy to, you know, sort of slavery, right? Marriage is probably one of the originary um, uh, uh, um, subordinations of, of women in, um, in our country, but that does not mean it is analogous to slavery in any way. So that's sort of a, a sloppy, I think, um, uh, metaphor that grips many, many very, 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 very smart people. And another one I think is that, um, and this is probably where I'm going to get myself in a little bit of, of trouble, but I think sometimes when we see efforts to try to tackle what I think is the manifest um, vulnerability um, and oppression of, of Black men and Black boys that we see in so many contexts, right? Um, you know, higher rates of incarceration, um, higher rates of unemployment, um, wider, um, wider um, um, educational disparities than, um, than Black girls. I think there, there can be this impulse to say it's somehow not true or like, you know, we're, we're um, you know, we're missing something because, you know, Black women have to be this sort of double marginalization. Instead, I want to actually look at, um, I'm not going to do it in this paper, but I want to look at Barbara Omolati's work. And, and she reminds us that, that, that structural slavery and structural racism um, marked not only, well, it, it marked a, a break in racialized patriarchy. Right, so that not only do we know that you know black women were deeply, deeply subordinated under slavery in ways that often were specific to black women, but it also was a break between typical patriarchal solidarity between between white men with black men, mm -hmm. and when we remember that central black feminist insight, it shouldn't surprise us at all then that there are going to be instances of very specific targeting of black men when they threatened various um, various power structures, right? And so again, that kind of additive that race and sex will always add up to be to be the manifest in the worst in black women misses i think the ways in which it's it's weighted right so depending on the context frequently black women are going to be sort of the most subordinated in many contexts but but not always sometimes it's men and so that's why i think we need that more nuanced weighted attention to context and everything else rather than understanding race and sex is always operating along these parallel trajectories i don't know if that makes sense it, it does, and it helps me as I'm prepared to help my students think critically next week about the John Stuart Mill essay, which is one of the prominent places where you see the marriage and slavery analogy. And uh, so I may send you an email. Um, so now I have a question that goes out to all of our panelists. Um, so one of the undercurrents of this panel and, and, and our morning panel as well, of the entire symposium, the, 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 the ongoing question of whose voices count, um, why they count, and how to make sure that we elevate and support those voices. And so our students were wondering from the perspective of law students, especially those who have authority as gatekeepers over law journals, um, what can they be doing differently and better to uh, support intersectional voices, ideas, strategies, and so forth. Can I ask a clarifying question there? So sure. th this kind of goes back to my 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 effort to. So do by intersectional because we, we're all intersectional, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So I'm not sure if they mean a diversity of voices, you know, more more people who are underrepresented in law reviews, or if they mean more people who are tackling these kinds of questions. So I'm not sure what 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 they were talking about. Yeah, I, I'd have to give it back to the questioner, which is difficult to do in Zoom. Once again, it's too bad the person isn't standing before you so that they can use uh, their own voice. Um, 
my own thought is probably both of those questions are on the table and you know one of the threads between the two panels has been this question what does intersectionality mean you know it's everything from a term that's used very precisely um, in Kimberly Crenshaw's work right to a meme right and so I I think they probably have in mind both of the kinds of questions that, that well, you have in mind I'll, I'll, I'll take it just a really, you know, quick, you know, there's so many things, including this wonderful symposium, right, is one way of doing it, prioritizing these kinds of topics. I think another one is to really look at um, the, um, you know, the, the representation, this is representational diversity, but the, but the representation of who is, is on the, is on the law review and, and not purely representationally, but also kind of the, the experiences that people bring and the ways that people will probably then value different kinds of topics and, and voices and perspectives. Um, and, 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 and everything else. So that's, that's one place to start. Yeah. I wonder too, um, if the, the whole question of what counts as intersectionality is, you know, implicit in the question, because you could imagine, and this is sort of at the heart of my question to Rachel, um, a white man saying, you know, I am not just a white cis man. I'm also a Christian evangelical. My religious identity gives me sort of intersectional yeah. Um, appeal that should be brought to the table. And, and I do think there is a way in which uh, there is perhaps an inversion of anti-discrimination law to sort of bring in a group of people that we would not ordinarily expect anti-discrimination law to be protecting, but they are making appeals um, to anti-discrimination law based on a multifaceted character that might be rooted in religion. So, I, I mean, again, like what do we mean by intersectionality and you know, as we think about being more intersectional, are we aware in which that methodology may also be used by those who may not necessarily have the same ends in mind? I can be really quick and, and just offer maybe two Please. sentences. One is um, have a healthy degree of skepticism when you think something is a small and marginal issue. So um, injuries that occur to people who are at the margins and um, are experiencing multiple forms of marginalization at the same time will often seem unfamiliar to you and inconsequential, and they will not match up easily with the literature. Um, they will not be able to cite, cite you know, the big folks in the field. They will seem strange. And so when you encounter those, look for, if, you, if the law review itself is not you know, fairly diverse, you're gonna have to go outside and look for people who actually know something about that information. And then take that same lens and apply it to the sort of big wigs in the field who don't recognize their positionality. So I, I would submit you shouldn't be accepting pieces for people who aren't recognizing the race and gendered and classed basis of their arguments and learn how to do that work. Because as long as they're able to offer their analyses as seemingly objective and divorced from these kinds of considerations, it creates a dynamic wholly within the field, within academic scholarship and with law school, in law school classrooms that always forces folks of color, people from marginalized places, sexual orientation identities, gender identities, it always forces them to make the case why their interests are relevant rather than changing the rules of the game so that of course you ask those questions. So we have come to the end of our time and I want to thank our panelists for an absolutely amazing and exciting uh, uh, discussion and, and set of papers, essays, if you will. Um, I also want to thank the audience for participating and for all of your great questions. There are many more questions that came to us in the Q&A and we just simply didn't have time to explore them all. Um, for those of you who want to pursue these questions, I predict that the panelists 
would be happy or willing to give more of their time. Um, so please feel free to email them along. Um, we're going to take a short break now. We will reconvene at 1.30. And I very much hope to see all of you again um, as we return. Uh, first up, our Dean Risa Galyabov will be presenting the Gregory Swanson Award to one of our students. And then we will have the pleasure of listening to our keynote address by Elaine Jones. So enjoy the break and see you soon. <laughs>